This podcast is for general educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be considered medical, practice management, legal, investment, or other professional advice. No one should act or refrain from acting based on this podcast without obtaining appropriate professional advice. But the, what this group showed, uh, because they focused, they did a comparative group of African-Americans versus non-African Americans, and they showed that the cheapest pills controlled the, 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 was the best controller of hypertension uh, in the African-American group versus using these a very expensive, you know, newer, you know, drug classes. It was kind of fascinating because that was really one of the first times, at least in hypertension, even though it's a prevalent thing in the African-American community, was that, you know, sometimes the cheapest way is the, the, the best way to control. So that, that was an eye-opener. Welcome to Gastro Broadcast, presented by Gastrologic, your GI-specific group purchasing and business development partner. I am your host, Dr. Naresh Gunaratnam. Today, I'll be talking to Dr. John Carruthers from the University of Michigan Medical School. He's an accomplished researcher, and I've been looking forward to the discussion. This is not a full list, but some of Dr. Carruthers' research interests includes familial cancer syndromes, tumor genetics, and the mechanisms of tumor progression, molecular pathology, and colorectal cancer disparities. Today, we're going to talk about disparities in research and why it's important to have diversity in clinical trials. Let's get started. Dr. Carruthers, welcome to Gastro Broadcast. Hi, how's it going? So, John, tell me about your path to the University of Michigan. Have you always wanted to be a physician, and how did you choose gastroenterology? Sure. So, yeah, I've uh, been interested in going into medicine since I was seven years old. Of course, not GI at that time. But my path, um, uh, just to give you a little bit of background, I grew up in the city of Detroit, uh, 10th of 12 kids. And um, none of my parents were in the medical field, although I had one brother who uh, ended up going to medical school before I was. He's, He's number... He's number three and I'm number 10 in the family. So I was interested in medicine. And then finally I did, uh, because of cost reasons, I went to Wayne State undergrad and Wayne State Medical School because they were in the city of Detroit and I didn't have to move or drive anywhere or, or excuse me, fly anywhere or stay room and board. And um, so when I, while I was in medical school, it was very interesting because um, I I asked someone, I saw a, what I would say, a role model. I saw someone who was the dean for admissions. I said, well, how does someone become dean for admissions? And uh, they said, well, you have, to, you have to figure out how to do research <laughs> and get involved in academic medicine. I was like, okay, how do I do that? And they said, well, you have to figure that out. And so I ended up uh, getting exposed to some research um, at the end of my first year, between the first and second year working in a lab and got my name on two papers and the bug was bitten at that time. So I, um, um, uh, so that's how I got into research. Now, going to gastroenterology is a little bit different story because I, like most medical students, went all over the place with, you know, thinking about OBGYN and surgery and pediatric surgery. In fact, I was leaning toward pediatric surgery. Uh, I worked as a unit clerk in the OR of Children's Hospital for many years uh, while I was an undergrad. And then uh, when I got to residency, which was my first time moving away, which was in Boston at Massachusetts General Hospital, I um, uh, actually loved oncology space. 
And I almost became a medical oncologist until the last month before fellowship applications. I had a wonderful gastroenterologist, hepatologist, who was my attending, who was very thoughtful, participated in uh, clinical trials and clinical research. And I said, that's someone I would like. And so I applied for GI. That's how I got into GI. <laughs> so... That's a great story, John. I didn't know that about you. I think a lot of people who respect and admire you would really appreciate hearing that background. All of our backgrounds are quite different, but it seems to be that the common factor is that we all had great mentors. The reason I went into GI was was I went on rounds with my uncle, who was a gastroenterologist, and I was so impressed and thought the endoscopy was so interesting that I made up my mind when I was 17. So mentors do have a great impact on your life. How did you decide on a career in research rather than going into private practice? Well, that's that's um, probably a little bit more complicated. Um, uh, I, I was uh, always interested in, um, you know, doing some investigation, and pr- particularly since I had that um, uh, exposure in medical uh, school. And um, and so again, you know, as 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 what you hinted at, having a role model or mentors, you know, you're you're almost a product of circumstance when things happen, you get exposed to. So, I you know, when I when I asked like, how does a person become the dean for admissions? Not that I was I knew what a dean for admissions exactly did full time. Um, I, I uh, and when someone told me that you have to do research and figure that out, I, I kind of went down that path. And um, and so the bug was bit when um, uh, I did uh, some research in medical school. As I said, I got two, I got my name in the middle author on two papers uh, with a plastic surgeon of all people, uh, and I got my name on an abstract with an endocrinologist while in medical school. And so I I decided around that time that no matter what field I was going to go in, I was going to probably do some form of research. I didn't know what in form or shape at that time. So fast forward, as I was applying to GI fellowships, as I said, I, I only applied to fellowships that had a T32. These are NIH training grant slots that afford some time to at least explore it because I, I could have failed too. And um, I actually um, uh, ended up matching at the University of Michigan. Uh, Tachi Amada had moved from chief to chair and he um, um, suggested I uh, work with this guy named Andy Feinberg, uh, who was a Hopkins-trained MD-PhD working in the field of colon cancer. Because, uh, you know, as I said, I almost went into oncology. So when I decided GI, I wanted to I lead, uh, lean toward GI oncology. And um, I wrote a grant that didn't get funded, um, wrote another grant, didn't get funded. And then finally, Andy said, you know, you should talk to this guy that just did a sabbatical in my lab, this guy named Rick Boland. And I said, okay. And so I talked to Rick. And it was the first time I met Rick. Um, I was still at Mass General at the time, but I had just matched. And back in the days, now now the fellowship match is like six months before you, you move. Back then, it was, it was almost a, it was like a year before you move. So he introduced me to Rick, and we hit it off. And, um, and I said, okay, this is the guy I was going to work for. And so I... I, when I uh, matched at Michigan, did initially my first clinical year, then joined his lab. And, you know, as you said, mentorship is so important. Um, he was a good 
direct mentor for initiation of research, and then um, also a good mentor for you know being a physician scientist. Um, how that worked out for him, who had you know many years experience at that time, um, and I saw a possible path uh, for that. And I'll say one other thing too, and and I didn't really think this fully at the time, but uh, I'm obviously much older and more mature now. But I thought, um, you know, I I thought about uh, private practice um, in and out of at some periods of my life, particularly early on. But then I realized, um, particularly someone who's of African-American descent. And I didn't, again, this probably matured over time. This wasn't fully how I was thinking back then, but but I think about this now. I, you know, some of the advice I got in medical school was you should work in your community. You should do this. And and I thought about that and you you affect, you know, one patient at a time. You you work with a practice. You, you can do well financially, uh, generally. But then I thought, uh, well, how does one go into academics and stay in academics? And then I realized over time that I could affect, you know, hundreds, of, you know, tens if not hundreds of trainees at any one time in addition to patients and in addition, you know, a whole faculty. And, you know, we fast forward further when I became a division chief and chair, I mean, you can affect a lot of people. So it was a different aspect. Again, I didn't fully think of this at early stages, but I like... I think I like academic medicine for its diversity of what you do every day, the people you interact with, the number of people you can affect at various levels of a training from from medical students, sometimes even high school students, all the way to very senior faculty, um, in, in addition to patients. And so it's it's a I think it's and, and the scale is just uh, different, uh, particularly at the level I am right now. So uh, that's a, that's something I don't know if I could have articulated, you know, 20 years ago. But I think that's how I think now. I really like that response because I know you're really passionate about having a positive impact on people and communities. And it's really interesting to think about caring for patients one-on-one versus com- improving the health of a community. With your work, you can have an impact at a national level. The great thing about academics is that if you discover something that improves outcomes in a community of patients, then you can have an exponential effect, which is what you demonstrated with your research on colorectal cancer and genetics. You recently worked on the first ever report to Congress and the American public that specifically focused on on cancer healthcare disparities. Can you tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, this is a, a was a monumental um, and momentous occasion. So, first, I have to give credit to the American Association of Cancer Research, um, which is a you know organization that focuses on cancer research. Um, they've had a long history. I would say more like twenty five years of um, you know exploring um, uh, aspects of. Uh, minority disparities, particularly with cancer, because they focus on cancer. So that report, uh, its first ever, um, was delivered to Congress last September and is now on on their website, basically outlays some of the disparities of of largely a multitude of cancers 
um, that are present in different racial and ethnic groups. Now, I would say this first ever report um, probably tilted a little more toward uh, Blacks and Hispanics, but there's some instances of Native Americans and Asian Pacific Islanders in there. And the thought is that future reports may have different areas of focus for the different racial and ethnic groups. But I would say most of the data that's available that address disparities is largely in African Americans compared to Native Americans um, and other groups out there. So that's one of the reasons why it was a little focused. So this, they, uh, the, the report talks about epidemiology, some of the very specific things that create disparities, and some of, and there's some attempt to suggest some of the things that can um, uh, change or modify or eliminate those disparities, including um, suggestions for some simple things. And some of this particularly pertain to Congress, um, could fund certain programs that uh, allow people to have a normal diet. And as you know, lifestyle changes, um, bad lifestyle choices is a, a, uh, a, a contributor toward developing, for instance, cancer down the line um, versus good lifestyle choices. And this includes everything from tobacco to you know, eating high salt canned foods versus fresh foods and those types of things. But these are complex issues because, um, you know, in, in one space, um, there's been a lot of, uh, I'll say, structural issues with our country that go back three, four, five hundred years, um, particularly in certain uh, racial and ethnic groups that, um, um, you know, are hard to change. Um, and, you know, the, with a different societal lens and it, it, it may cause discrimination in where you, the type of jobs you get, the type of education you get, the, the, and those types of things. And those things have consequences on where you live. Do you live in an area where you have a food desert, you know, don't get fresh food, the, the use of tobacco and alcohol, which are all contributors toward development of cancer. Um, and so we have a lot of work to do. But I think that report um, uh, did raise some eyebrows because it put it in a slightly different light. Now that we have more and more data that wasn't existent uh, just as few as 10 years ago. And, uh, I, and I think the, the idea is to put this out. I, I think the ACI wants to put out an annual one, much like the overall cancer progress report, um, uh, uh, to, to continue to highlight that. So that's, in essence, what the report's about. Yeah, absolutely. As you point out, I think COVID really made racial disparities very evident. And the marginalization of communities in terms of economics and the availability of healthy food and access to care. If you pull all those risk factors, all of it contributes to bad health outcomes. And when you have something like COVID, which is worse for people with hypertension, heart disease, and obesity, that can be quite devastating. You know, when when the COVID first hit the United States back in February, March, April of 2020, no one was collecting data on the effects on uh, certain groups. It wasn't until someone finally figured it out. And then that data started coming around June or July. And it turns out, particularly in large cities, you know, if you look at New Orleans, Chicago, uh, Detroit, <laughs> New York, I mean, 
who were the people, where were the infections hitting? They were hitting the high-density people who were, didn't have big houses, couldn't socially distance, lived in more crowded conditions. Um, it was amazing that there was a huge disparity on who was getting COVID and then who was dying from COVID. And I think that, you know, if I think the things like that cancer report and the data that has been, the approach to data that has been happening over the last 10 or 15 years certainly put a highlight on COVID and in a matter of months really affected um, and you can see where where the where things were happening. I, I was just very um, fascinated. Um, the head of our um, the executive medical director for the state of Michigan, I'm blanking on her name, but she was on uh, 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 Michigan Talk Radio last night and she presented some data looking at the state of Michigan. And so early in the pandemic, it really affected particularly African-Americans. At that time, it was something like 38 or 40 percent of African-Americans were infected with COVID. Um, and they make up only like 18 percent of the state of Michigan population. And they were dying at uh, uh, two to three times of uh, rate. But since then, they've made efforts, not only in education, but uh, but in particular education about social distancing, mask wearing, all that stuff, um, and those rates have come way down. So when you measure it, as you said, when you measure things, you can change things and affect things. the 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 biggest challenge right now that she said was getting vaccination to those same more vulnerable populations, and they're they're developing that strategy on that. So information is key. So you can effectualize things, and 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 that COVID was a prime example of that. Even though that's not a cancer, but a lot of this uh, approach to data came out of some of these things that happened ten or fifteen years ago. You've long been a champion for increased diversity in clinical trials. How will diversity in research support health equity? So some of the things that give you the high risk for, let's say, GI cancers are the same things that put you at high risk for COVID. Um, these are lifelong, um, so sometimes societal uh, issues that set up the development over years. Um, and so these, you're right, these comorbidities that are tend to be a higher proportion in some of these um, racial and ethnic groups are the exact risk factors for COVID. So you're absolutely right. So uh, in many ways, um, so first, I don't know if you remember a study in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, that came out about 10 years ago. And, we, you know, we have, what, 30, 40 medications for treating hypertension. But the, what this group showed, uh, because they focused, they did a comparative group of African-Americans versus non-African-Americans, and they showed that the cheapest pills controlled the, 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 was the best controller of hypertension. Uh, in the African-American group versus using these a very expensive, you know, newer, you know, drug classes. It was kind of fascinating because that was really one of the first times, at least in hypertension, even though it's a prevalent thing in the African-American community, was that, you know, sometimes the cheapest way is the, <laughs> the best way to control. So that, that was an eye-opener. So that, that tells you a couple things. One is, First, you have to get participants in, and that's another story because there's historical um, uh, distrust 
particularly that goes back to the federal government and the Tuskegee experiments, the syphilis study that which lasted over 50 years in which they never treated African-Americans who actually had syphilis and they died, from, many of them died from syphilis even though there was penicillin and other drugs that could have treated them and they did not give that as an opportunity. Um, a lot of those rules have changed, but that that one thing stands in a lot of people's minds. The other thing was the um, uh, the HeLa cells that came from a woman in Baltimore, African American, who used their harvest the cells, her cervical cancer cells. She died at a young age, um, and without permission. And those cells have been used in cancer research. I mean, I even have those cells in my lab. Um, and those two things have really affected certain communities. So one is to get them and and to get them into trials. And why to get them in trials? It's because you may find differences. I think it gives you assurance that the trials might affect multiple populations. And I don't mean to just focus on African Americans. I would say Native Americans and other things because we all have SNPs, uh, single nucleotide polymorphisms. We all have um, slight genetic variations, and we also have. In, you know, we're, we're part of our environment and those environments can affect uh, how we metabolize, everything from metabolizing drugs and, and other things. So you have to figure out, is it, is it uniform in the population or are there certain populations that drug X or drug Y or technique X or Y might affect? So you got to get people into trials, which is a challenge in itself and Embedding and getting trust in the community is going to be key, but the outcome of those trials could have more broad implications for multiple populations. I think the woman you're talking about is Henrietta Lacks, right? Yes, her HeLa cells, that's right. Many private practices engage in clinical trials. What can we do at the local level to increase diversity in our research efforts? Wow. Um, so I've probably, a lot of it probably depends on your practice, where your practice is. Uh, but uh, I know your practice, so you're in the Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti area. So, I mean, you, you probably get patients from a wide swath of the community. Um, I, I think um, um, uh, making sure if you do participate in trials, whether it's a screening trial, a drug trial for IBD or whatever, that you make sure that enrollment crosses the population that you serve. I mean, I, I you know I can't expect a GI practice in the middle of let's say I don't know rural Alaska to get African Americans because there may not be a sizable African, but they should maybe get some uh, Native uh, Alaskans uh, in their trials because I'm sure they're caring for some. But to 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 try to get the the population to serve enrolled in those trials, um, if you're participating in those. Um, uh, the other thing is to um, uh, uh, make sure that, um, you know, that's offered in the community. So most practices are in a community and they gain trust in that community. I think it's important for enrolling people um, particularly of a variety of different backgrounds because some may be more hesitant than others because of some historical perspectives. Um, but they do trust the community. So being not only working at community, let's say in a GI practice, but if you, if not only practice, but if you participate in that community, people gain trust and are more likely to participate um, in trials. For instance, someone like me, I've 
I've participated probably in about six or seven trials since I've been a resident. Um, I, I participated in the hepatitis B vaccine trial. Um, I participated in some other trials. And right now I'm on a, a COVID antibody trial through our allergy division here um, because I, you know, I'm in medicine. And so I know that these things are generally safe and everything, you know, but um, uh, you know, you want to, you know, some of these things are just testing out does antibody X work? Does vaccine Y work? Um, does screening uh, approach through this way work? And I think this are, these things are so important for us to understand as long as they can apply to the populations that we serve and, and across the country apply to the broad population. So um, knowing your community, being a participating community, I think are key things to, to getting people in your community from all backgrounds to participate in those things um, as best you can. That's a great insight for those of us who are engaged in clinical trials. I'm sure many of my colleagues from private practice will also appreciate it. What advice would you give fellows who want to go into research? Ah, so first of all, it's great to hear someone's interested in research because that's getting fewer these days. <laughs> I think the, um, because pe people see that it's a, it's a, um, I'll say a more challenging path and they see NIH budgets and everything. So I'm thrilled that someone's even interested in that. But I, the advice I would give is um, uh, be patient, stay focused. You're going to work hard. I think uh, look, you know, the, becoming an academic person does not happen overnight. I, t I tell people in, in uh, you know, when I, when I joined Rick's lab, that I worked in his lab for five years. I don't have a PhD. I mean, that's that's the time it takes to get a PhD or do you know one or two postdocs. I essentially did a prolonged postdoc in his lab. I spent five years in the lab and learned some things. And not just it's not about learning techniques or approaches. It's really learning how to approach research on a broad scale. You know, when you first join a lab or a research group, because it could be a clinical research or whatever, you, you know, you, you're focused on one little thing. How am I going to enroll that patient or how, I'm, how am I going to do this one PCR experiment or whatever? But really about being a, I'll say a principal investigator, you know, over time, you're, you're really thinking of approaches and strategies to answer questions that largely are either societal questions for your area or questions that you're interested in that no one's really answered. That's really great advice for young students. Thank you, Dr. Carruthers. Talking to you always gives me so much to think about, and you give me hope that we can move the needle on healthcare disparities. I really appreciate the time you spent with us. My, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Gastro Broadcast. Find new episodes through Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. For information about our hosts, guests, and supporters, visit gastrobroadcast.com. Produced by Steadfast Collaborative.